0: Welcome to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth and historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces <laughs> Museum at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the fast attack submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other assignments. Bill, I'm going to read your full intro from now on because people are upset that I don't.
1: <laughs> I don't understand why today I was going to call myself... Spoiler alert, Toady, because we got a <laughs> lot of spoiler alerts in this episode. And, you know, that that's what I thought you should call me today. But anyway, let's go.
0: <laughs> With us as well, as I'm sure that you can see, is... Uh, Ah, try again, stupid. With us as well, as I'm sure that you can see, is Tommy Lofton. He's joined us the last several weeks on uh, reviews of these uh, Masters of the Airs program, and uh, always glad to have him. He's a fantastic historian and director of the Mississippi Armed Museum. How are you this
2: fine morning, Tommy? I am good, guys. I am uh, not going to be spoiler alert, Tommy, if I can help it today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we, we got we got a lot of, lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, but uh, Yeah.
1: How do you review the episode without telling people what happened? So for those of you who haven't watched yet, watch the episode and then come back
0: and watch our review, unless you want to know what's going to happen before you watch it. In that case, watch us first. Exactly. Exactly. So just for those who don't know, for the next several weeks, in line with our regular weekly release on the Pacific War, which we will obviously continue to do, uh, we'll be doing an additional episode each week that covers our review of each episode of Masters of the Air. So that's what we're doing here. Uh, as always, before we get started, we do want to ask you to like and subscribe to our show and channel as helps other people find our stuff. So please do so if you haven't already done so. Now, on with the show. So we are going to review Masters of the Air Episode 3. Um, by far, guys, uh, this – go ahead, Bill. Part 3. They, I don't know part why, three. but they call them yeah. – yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't get it either, but such as it is. Um This one is by far the most, uh, so far, is by far the most intense episode, easily, hands down. Um, This one covers the famous uh, double strike mission number 84 to Schweinfurt-Regensburg that was flown by the 8th Air Force. At that time, it was the biggest raid that the 8th Air Force had flown uh, yet so far in the war, August 17th, 1943. Um, I don't know about you guys, but like I said, I'd been looking forward to seeing this one because this is a raid that I studied. Uh, for a long time and and i knew a lot of guys that flew in this raid not just from the 100th but i knew a lot of guys that were in 100 that flew in this raid too so i was very curious to see how they um, portrayed this actual episode and and not just the episode but i mean episode in history and uh, all i can say is i was not disappointed it was everything i thought it would be and frankly and more i I don't i don't know about y'all
2: yeah i thought it was uh was pretty intense uh especially you know we've had some intensity and built up to this moment in the previous two episodes but uh i mean this thing i felt like from the time it kicked off and the anticipation of waiting to get into the air and then all of the aerial combat and even just the anticipation of trying to uh reach their final destination without going too into the spoilers yet um it was you know edge of your seat it was uh it was good i was i was glad to see that Crosby's character was a little less uh, Barney Fife. Uh, he was a, a lot more professional. I, yeah. I think we guessed last uh, episode or maybe episode before that. You know, maybe they were trying to build up his character to make him more confident. They he definitely seemed to be this time, and I was pleased yeah. with that. So, yeah, so,
1: so about the you go? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. This episode opened with a mission brief, and and it was great that they provided some narrative context where the colonel said a year ago. The 8th Air Force flew with just 12 B-17s. and In today's mission, we're going to three air task forces flying 376 forts and 240 fighters. Now, we didn't get to see many of those fighters in this episode, but he did describe it as the largest air armada ever assembled in the history of mankind with just 376 forts. And you just wait because, as I said last week, before this war is over, we're going to be flying over a thousand bombers on a single mission. Yeah,
0: yeah, it it and it was, and that's all 100 percent accurate too. I mean, you know, I agree. I, I like the fact, and that it, it seems to be a you know a continuing thing where they're going to provide the briefing, and you have to because most people don't know what what happened on these raids, or they don't know why we're going to these raids or, or to these uh, targets. And you know, again, the the fact that this was uh the first double strike if you will if you will of the war and you know I, I I hearken back to an episode uh or to a scene in um twelve o'clock high when uh Gregory Peck holds up the ball bearing and says because it's the same same rate and he holds up the ball bearing and says you know this is what we're after and da da, da and they did that in that episode last night. I'm not sure if that was a call back to twelve o'clock high or a tip of the hat or what or <laughs> it was I felt there, like it probably happened. was. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the 100th didn't go after Schweinfurt. Schweinfurt was the ball bearing factory, uh, the Kugelfischer factory in, in Schweinfurt, Germany is where uh, the 1st Air Division was headed, the uh, 3rd Air Division or 3rd Wing at that time. Where the 100th was going was, of course, Regensburg, Germany, which was the uh, Messerschmitt 109 factory down there. At this time in the war, just to give a little historical background, at this time in the war, you know, the 8th Air Force was focusing on the destruction of the German fighter industry and the German war machine itself. That's why they were bombing Schweinfurt, going after the ball bearing factory. That's why they're going after the Messerschmitt factory. They figured, you know, hey, if we can kill the, cut the head off the snake and, and kill the fighter production plant, maybe we won't have to face so much of them. Completely logical. Mm-hmm. Completely logical. Mm-hmm. But um,
1: and guys, you know, he did describe it as the deepest penetration yet of the war for bombers. And then you know, the the line on the big map shows them going all the way down Africa. And I think it was Kurt who said, why does that red line go to Africa? Um, and, and I didn't get, you know, watching the episode once, I didn't understand what the heck
0: they were going to Africa for. Do you, you guys, can you
1: illuminate us on that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it, it was multifaceted as to why they went. All the way the heck down to North Africa, not the least of which is the fact that it was going to be difficult to return back through that way because it was the back through to England. Because it was indeed the deepest penetration that was going to be flown by that group of of B-17s at that time. Um, It took pretty much all they had to get out there in the first place, Uh, specifically this. Section of 17s was fitted with what they called Tokyo tanks, which are extra long-range fuel tanks in those 17s to get down to that location. And another reason they wanted to go through down to Africa was because of the fact that they were thinking that they would not encounter many German fighters on the way out, which is 100% true because they didn't. Right? Um, they did get pecked at a little bit on the way home, but by and large, they were left alone by the German fighters as they headed over the Med into North Africa. So that part of the plan actually did work.
1: Um, and, and it was Algeria, yeah. right? That they were going to land in it's because they didn't have enough yeah. fuel to get back to England. Is that the issue? Pretty much. Even with the Tokyo yeah.
0: tanks? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, everything that they showed in the episode pretty much is exactly as it occurred. Um, you know, the, the the weather in England then and as now, obviously, is notoriously fickle. <laughs> and it played a huge part in why the raid the 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 double strike went off as it did because as they showed in the episode you know the aircraft both wings the the guys going to Schweinfurt and the guys going to Regensburg were delayed because of fog they were socked in because of fog and and they couldn't go and it threw off the timing for everything because everything on that mission hung on the timing so as to basically split the German fighter forces. So not one group would just get hammered. And uh, unfortunately, that, that, that did not work out because the third division in which the 100th was a part was under the command of, the 100th was not, but the third division was under the command of one Curtis LeMay. And Curtis LeMay said, we got to go. We got to go right now. And they actually said that in the episode. They said, uh, I think they said, Colonel LeMay wants to go now. He doesn't want to hold any longer. I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something yeah. along those lines. And that's, again, that's 100% true. LeMay was like, we got to go. If we're going, we got to go now.
2: Well, and he was getting pressure from Washington, too, if I remember correctly. And it wasn't even, I may be wrong, but I don't i don't think it was even entirely him because I think he was kind of looking at it like it may be a wash. I seem to remember Washington putting a lot of pressure on them continuing that mission and moving then. And, you know, I can't, I know that was also, I don't, they showed a little bit, but multiple delays too along mm-hmm. that yeah. waiting period. I mean, can you imagine you're, you already know this is going to be one heck of a mission, something unique, brand new. Uh, your anticipation is high. You're, you're, you're nervous, of course, especially after going through so much already. And then you're having to sit there and wait and wait and wait, basically, wait to die in, in a lot of ways. And I think it's kind of a, uh, you know, poignant thing to see where they have the chaplain uh, under the wing there praying with several airmen and kind of all the different conversations and things guys are trying to do and, uh, you know, reading books, whatever else to try to occupy their time, but also keep their mind off of what's ahead. I think in some ways, because that has to be, I can't imagine having to sit there and wait and wait and, and the idea that if you wait and do this another day, that's even that much more time. These guys are going to be thinking about What's ahead of language? Anyway. Yeah, and
1: I do like the way they portrayed the pre-mission boredom. As you said, it's a combination of boredom and jitters because you know you're going to eventually have to fly this mission, and it might just delaying the inevitable. And to make matters worse, the hundredth was tail end Charlie on this mission, which is the worst place to be, right? Fourteenth lead squadron was Major Kid, Then Egan was going to be the reserve command command pilot of the group. And people were asking, "What the heck is a reserve com- command pilot?" it's it's a pi- command pilot when the main command pilot gets killed dudes and then major veal in the 349th and then you know all that's going on of course the, the the tail end of the tail end is bucks squadron and the last plane in bucks squadron is bitex fort and that is absolutely the worst place to be from the standpoint of facing fighters
0: yeah they they, they used to call that section purple heart corner uh for for mm-hmm. good reason Uh, And and when in any uh, briefing, when any group, I don't care what group it was, when they found out they were the low, low group, you know, there was a uh, Mm -hmm. unanimous groan going through the briefing rooms because they knew they were going to get hammered. And they were. Yeah, German fighters are going to go after the lowest target every time.
1: And you you did say that Colonel Colonel LeMay said, send them up now. Yeah. the group commander the colonel i can't remember his name said harding send, sending them straight up straight into hell alone yeah. and you know that just kind of sets the stage for what's about to happen
2: and that's a hell of a yeah. call for him to have to make you know as a commander knowing what's really you know these guys don't know this when they're taking off but they're up there alone of course they figure it out and you see that in the show where they're they're looking around, trying to figure out where well, all the other aircraft, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, I can't imagine being in his shoes and having to make that tough call, knowing what's more than likely about to happen, especially mm-hmm. knowing that the entire Luftwaffe will only have one set of targets, if you will, mm-hmm. instead of have it split between Breggensburg and Schweinfurt. And,
0: and, and that, that's the key takeaway from this specific raid, um, which I think was portrayed in the show Very, very, very well is that the thought was by launching both of these groups, you know, Schweinfurt and Regensburg at at the same time or as close to the same time as they could get, and then splitting, they're going to force the German fighters to pick one or at the very least split their forces. And of course, that doesn't happen because if I remember correctly, and again, you know, I I said no notes last time, I took very few notes this time. Um, Schweinfurt was delayed an additional three hours and there may be, you know, give or take, but it was no, no less than three hours after Regensburg took off. So the German fighters had time to hit the Regensburg force, land, (coughs) refuel, Mm -hmm. hit Schweinfurt, land, refuel, and hit Schweinfurt on the way out. So these guys just got hammered all the way in. Um, I mean, they started picking up German fighters once they crossed the French coast, you know, and we did have, they did have some Allied escort. Yeah, if I remember correctly, there were Spitz and P-47s. And basically, I mean, they could only go so far. So, And they turned around and literally there were guys. I remember Joe Armanini saying he was a bombardier on this mission. He said that, you know, you watched the fighters turn around and go back to England. And by the time you turned around and looked back ahead, the
2: German fighters were coming in. I mean, you yeah. know, it was it was all the way in. Well, the Germans definitely cool. knew the the range and limitations of our oh, fighters yeah. at this point, and they weren't mm-hmm. going to try to tangle with them if they could help it, for sure.
1: Well, the B seventeen start flying. I mean, it's not long the flak stops almost immediately, and the fighters show up, and that's when all hell breaks
0: loose. Yeah, yeah. and that was something I think they did very very well in this episode. Two was the lack of flak, and you'd be like, well, this is an important target. Why wasn't there a lot of flak? There wasn't historically, you know, uh, the, the Regensburg Task Force, they ran into some, but by and large, the only thing that they really had to contend with on this particular mission, and by and then I'm talking about the Hundredth Bomb group specifically, because that's what the show's about, it were fighters because the flak mm-hmm. over Regensburg was spotty at best. And um I think they again they portrayed that very well. You know, you could you could make the complaint that they could have Hollywooded it up by putting flak all over the place, but that wouldn't have been accurate and they did the right thing here, so. yeah. yeah. And they get hit almost
1: immediately. I, was, I think Clevins' left wing gets hit, and then Buck gets hit. You know, there's just really, really good air-to-air action, white-knuckle action in this episode. You see a fort cartwheeling. You see ten shoots, and you know, and I think all of that is out of out of the actual record of the battle. Yeah. And- or you can you know, get out. All this, is happening, all this is happening before they even get to the drop point, uh, to right. the, the target. Yeah. Right. And, so, and it, talk to me about these rockets that, that are getting shot at them. So
0: that is a thing, so, you know. Is it? Yeah, it is, it, it, or was. Um, the Germans, I, I don't remember exactly when they deployed that weapon for the first time. And it may have been here, again, my 8th Air Force Minutia is there, but it's in the recesses of the mine. It's been replaced <laughs> with, you know, Guadalcanal and things like that. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that was totally a thing. And these rockets, you know, they weren't like air to air missiles. They weren't designed to hit the B 17. They were designed basically like airborne flak. And I say airborne flak, all flak's airborne. But I mean, you, you know what I'm trying to say. You know, airplane yeah. fired flak, these rockets would explode, and boom, and they'd, they'd... shrapnel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did they hit airplanes? Yeah, absolutely, they did. You know, more often than not, they they would, if they hit the fuselage, they'd cut clean through. But regardless, yeah, that was a that was a thing, and the Germans used that till the end of the war. Uh, these airborne-fired, you know, airplane-fired hmm. rockets, you know, anti-air. So yeah, it was that was definitely a, a a real thing,
2: kind of a terrorism type of, and I don't mean that in the sense of like nine eleven, but I mean it was something to bring terror to the the people who saw them, and it reminds me a lot of their ground version of that with the Nebelwerfer. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, we have one here at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. Mm-hmm. We oh, do, wow, we, we, do we do indeed.
1: Shameless but, plug there, but it's appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the the Belgium, um, you know, Luftwaffe scrambled there's rockets. One of the things that continues to amaze me is that you know you can get this these explosions either from flak or these rockets that we're talking about, and some of the flak would penetrate the airplane. And kill individual members of the crew when other guys are un, untouched, right? So in a couple of cases here, we get those situations where the co-pilots, the right seaters, are hit or killed, and the left seaters are okay, and vice versa, of course. And, and in this case, I'm thinking of Biddick's um, a co-pilot, you know, was, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Dickey. Snyder. I called him Yeah, Dick, Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dicky yeah. gets hit. And Biddick's saying, stay with me, Dickie. And there said people saying he's dead. No, he's not dead. He's breathing and going back and forth. Like that kind of thing is
0: pretty interesting as well. Yeah. And I mean, that's hundred percent accurate, you know, well, and we'll get to Biddick here in a second and, and Snyder specifically, but, um, but that, that sort of thing that they were portraying there, like, you know, you're, and that's something I wanted to talk about last week and, and, and we didn't, but I'll bring it up now. The thing that, that I think is, obviously very accurate in this show is that when they show the pilot and the co-pilot and Tommy, you and I were talking about this because both of us have sat in a cockpit of a B-17. And if I remember correctly, both of us have sat next to each other in a cockpit of a B-17, mm-hmm. you are literally rubbing shoulders with the guy next to you. Like you see in some movies like 12 o'clock high or Memphis bell, and there's some space in between these dudes, not, not a ton of space, but there is some space And this show. I mean, these guys are on top of one another and in a B17 in a real B17 that is it how was. it is like yeah i mean you are yeah. like yeah. i could reach over and scratch your ear for you without stretching very far yeah. same, your as true, other same as true. ear
2: same is true down beneath the pilot and co-pilot, you know where the uh, navigator and bombardier are sitting they can almost you know like you said reach out and scratch each other's ears and stuff it's uh, i've flown in the uh in that front section at least once or twice in, in a 17 and it's it's more crammed than I you t- would think <laughs> yeah
0: And I I like the fact that they show that and and the fact that, you know, so far, I mean, we've seen a few fighter attacks coming from the tail end of the airplane, but the vast majority of the fighter attacks that have been portrayed in all three of these episodes so far come from the nose. And that was the chosen German fighter tactic to bring down B-17s because B-17s have been proven multiple, multiple, multiple times to be... Probably the most rugged airplane that was put to war during World War II. I mean, these things had come home, you know, looking like Swiss cheese with half a tail and one engine, and they'd bring their people home. That's why the guys who flew in them loved them. And the Germans knew this, that they were not an easy plane to bring down. The easiest way to bring those planes down is to kill the pilots. That's why they're shooting up that nose. That's why, and Tommy, you're 100% right. There is a statistic book, and I think it's actually on my shelf in my office, that says you know, the bombardier, the navigator, the pilot, co-pilot, and top turret gunner suffered X amount percentage of casualties, and they were X amount percentage killed and everything. And that nose end of that 17 was easily the most uh, deadly place to be in, for sure. And they portray that very, very well in every episode we've seen so far in the show, I think, anyway.
2: Yeah, I feel like they've done a great job with the attack sequences and the, uh, you know, the effect on the crew, the fact that some are getting hit, some are... You know, as soon as they get hit, they're trying to figure out, are you hit or am I hit? You know, what right. what, and then they realize some of this is fluid from the aircraft. And then you had the, um, I can't remember if it was in Buck's aircraft that the uh radioman got hit, like right yes. at the knees or yeah. below or yes. above. I forget where exactly, but, you know. blown off. Yes.
1: Yeah. I think it was, yeah.
2: And, and yeah. just, you know, you got this guy, you sit here, you're having to help him, you realize he's dead or dying, and then you're still getting attacked mm-hmm. and having to do your job. And it, it, I... I think they've done a great job showing the sheer terror in the sky, the, the panic, but then also the professionalism and the, uh, I would say the successful training, successful training that these guys went through, that they're still able to get back on their weapon, fire, stay focused, uh, and, and keep their eye on the prize of trying to get home as best they can and, and, and work as a team.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, because they're trying to cover so much. The, the 90s Memphis Bell movie, which was basically a single airplane, um, you know, they 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 did a really good job with that movie of portraying one guy, one casualty and the their effort to try to keep him alive throughout the mission in freezing temperatures and all of that. Yeah. And, and because they need to cover so much in the mini-series here, they um they don't stick with that one guy. So you don't get that full character arc through the casualty that you might get in, in Memphis Bell, but but they cover so much more so well, mm-hmm. including, for me, what's been the saddest moment in this three episodes we've seen so far. Are you
0: ready to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm assuming you're, you're referring to Curtis Biddick. You know, uh, I am. The, the character of yeah. Curtis Biddick. I, mean, I really like that
1: character. Oh, the, yeah. the, the person and the guy and the actor playing him really kind of, for me.
0: Yeah. And, and we went into that last week and, and, and bring it up again, you know, they, they portray him to be a New Yorker. And of course he was and He was born in Wisconsin. He was raised in California. Um, and and he is a very likable character. And again, a hey, spoiler alert, if you don't want to hear this mute, but Biddick dies uh, on this Regensburg mission, he is killed in action. And, um, you know, that's one reason that I kind of had an issue with the way they portrayed him as I knew that he, he was not making it happen mm-hmm. in, in real life and but mm-hmm. uh, as such as it is um the way they portrayed biddicks crew the way they portrayed biddicks airplane going down was 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 accurate uh, to an extent there were a few things they kind of missed and a few things they kind of messed up um i don't know why uh but you know the one instance the thing that stands out to me more than anything else is the way they showed Dickie Snyder, who was Biddick's co-pilot, who's a flying office flight officer. Um, the way they showed him dying in, in the right seat of the airplane is by all accounts not how the man died. Uh Biddick's airplane got hit <clears throat> by German fighters. 20 millimeter shells came in there and, and literally just punched the thing full of holes. It was very obvious that the airplane was going down. There was an oxygen fire in the aircraft. So, I mean, the thing is, it's going down. It is burning Mm -hmm. like a Roman candle. And Biddick hits the alarm bell, you know, the bailout bell. Everybody get the hell out of this thing, like, now. And his co-pilot, Snyder, in reality, um, by all accounts, and by that I'm saying, eyewitnesses from the 100th Bomb Group watched this happen with their own eyes Said that Snyder climbed through a shell hole in the right side of the airplane, Mm -hmm. stood on the freaking wing of the bird as it's going down, reached back inside of the airplane, put on his parachute, and jumped. When he jumped, he hit the rear horizontal stabilizer of his own B-17, and it killed him. He was not in the airplane when it went down at all. And that is, again, that's not me saying that, that is eyewitnesses to the actual event saying that this is what happened. We saw this happen. And for whatever reason, they did not portray it like that. And I frankly don't understand why, because that's like literally like something you would write for a movie, except it happened in real life. So, you know, I they do show separately another guy free falling,
1: yeah. slamming into an airplane right. and, and get killed. But but that wasn't. Uh, Dicky in in this show, they didn't show no. it that way, right? No, now, now, no. So you
0: said they put on their. Why aren't they wearing their parachutes while they're flying? <laughs> they put them on before they bail out. At, well, some sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. Like the ball turret Gunner, by by and large, could not. If he was a could not he, fit a, in fairly yeah. good sized guy, he couldn't fit in there with the chute. They had a safety mm-hmm. strap that went right in between their legs that would. If they were to fall, they would theoretically catch them literally by the balls and keep them from flying or from falling out of the airplane. And then they'd get in there, put the chute on and get out. But I mean, again, back to my earlier comment about you're sitting on top of each other in an airplane. You don't a lot of times you don't have a chance to wear a parachute because you can't fit. So, yeah, I mean, I some guys may have been able to some guys may not. I like my large individual self, I can guarantee you there's no way I could fit in an airplane with a parachute. I can barely fit in it now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so there's yeah, there's no way. But but uh but that that was a thing. I mean that was that was a that was a real thing. The other thing about Biddick that I want to mention uh for historical accuracy sake is that when they show him going down and Biddick's riding the bird into the ground and he's gonna try and put it on the ground and belly landed. And that is apparently true. Again, you know, at this point, nobody's actually in the airplane, but eyewitnesses watched the airplane go down. So, and among his crew that survived them, you know, that became POWs, um, they watched this happen with their own eyes. Uh, the 17 was heading towards a German village. And I, forgive me, I don't remember the name of the village. And it is a village, it is like, you know, Mayberry. And um, eyewitnesses on the ground, German eyewitnesses, remember this plane coming towards the village, and they're all like, Oh, my God, we're we're all going to die. And at the last second, they see the 17 veer off and put it down in a field. And apparently that was Curtis Biddick trying to avoid the German village with his burning B-17. And as he tries to put it down in the field, apparently he just he just lost it. And it it went down in the field and, of course, explodes like they it 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 do explode. show it in the show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because the
1: oxygen fire was going on at this time. Oh, yeah. So it was a fuel tank to to be explode penetrated and the whole thing is going to go up that's what they that's the way they show it
0: yeah 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 so it it um you know there, there there's a couple things there that that didn't happen uh, that that I'm really not sure why they didn't show it because it's you know as they say truth is stranger than fiction and just, <laughs> that's the mm-hmm. truth but um but aside from that aside from that I I couldn't find anything to nitpick if I tried with the rest of the episode especially when it came to Gail Clevin We talk about 12 o'clock high. Of course, the author for 12 o'clock high was a guy named Bernie Lay. Uh, Bernie Lay flew in the B 17 called Piccadilly Lily with the 100th Bomb Group on the Regensburg raid. So, a lot of the things that you see or read, depending on what you want to do with 12 o'clock high, were inspired by this raid from Gail Clevin. Um, The instance that you see where he's arguing with Norman Scott, uh, who's the co pilot. -pilot. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's accurate. hundred percent, hundred percent accurate.
1: Yeah, the other co-pilot wants to bail out and Buck says, we're going to sit here and take it. He's grabbing him. We're going to sit here and take it. Uh, and he said, the crowds are heading back to, to refuel. We're going to do this.
0: Yeah. And that, that's, that's a hundred percent accurate. That is, you know, by all accounts, again, hearing over the radio, that is precisely what the man said, you son of a bitch. You're going to sit here and take it. That's exactly what he said. Um. Mm-hmm. The thing about Clevin for this one that they uh, didn't mention in the show, maybe they'll do it later, I don't know, is he receives this di- the, the Distinguished Service Cross mm-hmm. for this raid in particular, for his leadership in this raid, which,
2: um, as we all know, is... Second only lead to the Medal of Honor, folks. And he was put in? Was this where he was put in for the Medal of Honor? first? Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And then I seem to remember he even said he didn't earn it and, you know, felt humble about that. But it's yeah. a pretty powerful uh, story for sure. And and back to mm. Biddick, you know, for the – if you take away the historical inaccuracies, I do like that way that they portrayed the drama. It was oh, yeah. you know, a little gut-wrenching to watch. You know, he's a very for confident sure. guy anyway, and then to see him in that last second of just terror and realization on his face right before he hits the ground was just – man, that was emotionally gripping, uh, difficult to watch, and I think even better hit home the seriousness of this war and the uh, the scary – uh, nature of not just the eighth air force, but anybody in the air service in, in world war two. Um, you know, that, that was, it was a tough episode to watch at times. And it was pretty, pretty powerful. I thought it was awesome. It I really was. Just, yeah. But, um, yeah, I oh, mean, good. I was going to say, I do want to jump in and at least half correct myself from a, uh, previous, you know, in the communication sense, and I went back and looked at some old AARs from some other stuff. You know, I was discussing, I think in the previous episode about the intercom system, the communication system mm-hmm. and how they would probably some of them wouldn't, you know, refer to each other by first name and did find where even crews that had served together for a while still referred to each other as pilot and co-pilot. Um, mm-hmm. but I did hear it a few times in this episode, where it was the other way around, where the initial conversations maybe started, uh, but then even in the moment, they would refer to, I think uh, Buck does it to one of his crew members, and uh, I forget which other aircraft. There's a few times where they end up, instead of referring to their position, going with their name. So I was half right, how about that? Uh, but mm-hmm. half wrong, too. So I at least want to recognize that, and I'm sure we'll still get comments about it one way or the other, maybe. But but uh, I did think, going also to... Uh, uh Clevin's character there, you know, when when he's arguing with his co-pilot, it was interesting to see how the rest of the crew could hear it all over the intercom and maybe it instilled a little bit more uh confidence in what they were doing, you know, because I think the last thing that you want to hear is bail out of an aircraft at 20 something yeah. mm-hmm. thousand feet, so uh whether you're under fire or not, you know. Um I, I thought that that was a uh, that sequence was really well done in the way that they filmed it and and uh portrayed that and was kind of curious what they would do with it knowing that was coming and i was impressed with it as it happened that's like man they yeah they hit the nail on the head with that they nailed it they really yeah. did and, and to, yeah,
0: be, the, to be, believe be, it or not go ahead bill go ahead. Go ahead. what i was going to say is believe it or not this is where
1: they actually hit the, the ip and start the bombing run so all of this has happened
2: yeah
0: and they haven't, haven't even dropped their bombs yet go ahead yeah. seth i was going to say that the the thing with with norm scott and i want to make this abundantly clear here, is that he was, that dude was not a coward in any way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. Not that they portray him to be, they don't, but I want to put any uh, you know, thoughts to that, you know, to death now. Um, number one, anybody who could climb in a B-17 and fly over occupied Europe, 1943, unescorted, you couldn't be a coward physically. It's just not possible, uh, number one. Number two, the man was not by any means. And from all accounts, Again, people who saw the airplane, which was shot to hell, they had a very legitimate reason to bail out of that plane. Mm-hmm. It was Clevin that was like, uh uh-uh, uh, we're going to ride this bad boy all the way to North Africa, which of course they do. Um, but so, him, Scott, wanting to get out of that bird. It's not him, you know, being yellow or anything like that. No, I mean he had a legitimate reason to get the hell out of that airplane and his crew did too. It was Clevin that said, Nope, we're gonna sit here and you're gonna take it and we're gonna get through this thing and we're gonna get we're gonna drop mm-hmm. our bombs, complete this mission, and get the hell out of here, which they do, mm-hmm. which is one reason that Gail Clevin gets a distinguished service cross, is because of that action. Um mm-hmm.
2: which I thought was outstanding the way they portrayed
0: yeah, it. So Hello. Go
1: ahead, go ahead, Tommy.
2: No, I was just gonna say I was was thinking ahead too of of uh, how bad that airplane looked when it got to the ground. And one of my favorite lines, you know, in this episode is when Buck and Bucky are right there on the ground in Africa, and he looks up, he's like, you know, know what you're gonna say? You couldn't hit the runway. It's it's right over there. You know, just the just the you got
1: got that airplane all the way to Africa. and You couldn't get it to the runway.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I like that they, you know. There's not a ton of humor in this episode, but that that was a nice uh, rest. I guess you could Wait. say break from the yeah. uh, intensity of the rest of that episode. But mm-hmm. but also, you know, you could see the it was said in love. Uh, okay. But also recognizing that they were both happy to have survived what the heck they just went through. But I just I love yeah. that they they. I don't know, you know. I don't know if that was ever really said or not. But I uh, give them a thumbs up for at least adding that little banter in there. Whether Is that's one of those lines that if okay, they, they didn't though. say it. They should have. Yeah. Well. <laughs> well, the good news is, from here on, uh, for the rest of history, it'll have been said that they said it. So you know, that's the way it's, Hollywood it's works. Yamamoto.
1: <laughs> like Yamamoto, we've waken a sleeping giant. That's some right. Screen All right. So, <laughs> getting back to the bombing run, right? Um, they they report that the factory was destroyed. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Um, it was is. it dis- was it destroyed one hundred percent? No. Because um, I mean, they did still continue to produce 109s out of Regensburg. However, was it destroyed in such a way that it disrupted production for a significant amount of time? Yes. Um, as a matter of fact, the bombing accuracy by the 3rd Division, when they, I keep saying 3rd Division, that is what they're called later on in the war, but right now they're 3rd Wing, right? I think, yeah. think so. Um, mm-hmm. Regardless, their bombing accuracy, not just the 100th, but all of those groups that flew that Regensburg raid was to that point the most accurate bombing yet done by the 8th Air Force, because they really did put a licking on the Regensburg Messerschmitt factory. Uh, Schweinfurt, not so much. That's one of the reasons they went back in October and hit it again. But um, Regensburg, for that mission specifically, yeah, they, they really plastered it. They really did. If so mm-hmm. in that regard, the mission was a success, because they not only did they hit the target, they beat it. Uh, really bad so I mean you know they despite the heavy losses which are also accurately portrayed uh, they really did do a job on that factory so yeah yeah it's 100 percent accurate there 100 percent.
1: so at this point they're bouncing back and forth in the story between the airplanes which are trying not to crash even after they their bombing run is complete and Quinn who's back in Flanders Belgium who bailed out the guy that was trying to save the ball turret gunner baby face and and fails to save him. So he's on the ground. He turns himself into some locals. I'm kind of amused by the fact everyone speaks English on the ground. But maybe that was accurate, right? And they give Quinn, they t- they, you know, some uh, you know, what do you want to call them? Uh partisans some, some or uh... partisans, yeah. Say, turn around, you didn't see my face, you don't know my name. I'm putting a gun at your back. Resistance. But, what's that? The resistance, yeah. In a sense. Yeah. But here are your choices. You could turn yourselves into the Germans now, in which case you'll survive the war in a POW camp, or you could try to escape, and if you're caught, you'll be executed as a spy. What do you want to do?
0: Yeah. Is that an accurate portrayal as well? You know, so the thing when it comes to resistance in occupied Europe, was that a thing? Absolutely. Yes, Absolutely that stuff is so hard to confirm <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. you have you have to take the word literally everything that the everything that those guys being the americans would say this is what happened because you don't know you really can't confirm it unless there were multiple guys in that group which occurred but i mean individual individual experiences like that mm-hmm. maybe probably mm-hmm. probably so but i mean 100% can i say so or no no i can't so i, I don't know but it seems very, very likely, you know, that, that that is exactly or close to how it probably happened. Yeah, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, Let me jump back. Go ahead. You were going to say something, Tommy?
2: Oh, I was just going to say the, uh, yeah, I don't know about that, you know, specific type of situation or how accurate that was. I I, I kind of felt like I don't know how many people would actually give you the chance or or – you know, sit there and tell an airman you've got two choices. I think that was really done more for the audience. Uh, I think most yeah. of these airmen are going to want to get back to their base and maybe get back in a yeah. plane. And 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 I do remember interviewing uh, even some PT boat uh, commanders that were making crosses, you know, uh, missions across the English Channel at night to pick up down airmen that some of the resistance mm-hmm. would work even all the way back into France from Belgium and Germany and work them into uh, well not Germany, you but... know, well yeah. For the most part, yeah, uh, but some of these guys, especially getting into Belgium, and getting into France, and getting to the uh, English Channel, you know, some of these PT boats would come and pick them up at night, get them back to England, and uh, you know, the amount of intel and other things that that could come from that was was extremely helpful. But that was also a scary. I don't know if they're going to portray that in the series or not, but that was another pretty scary mission for even those PT boat crews, knowing that they've got. They've got to get these airmen, get them back to uh, the English coastline safely. While you also have the Germans out there patrolling the the shoreline for these down airmen, and and knowing they're going to try to make their way back to England to fight another day, or or what have you. But mm. um, but no, I thought I'm I'm looking forward to uh, also finally getting into potentially the escape and evasion or the POW stories. Um, mm. You know, I think it's going to be interesting when when some of the folks are portrayed there or run into people they thought were dead or that kind of you know that kind of thing. So giving the story away, Tommy. Well I'm not going (laughs) to I'm not naming names. But I mean it's you know it's historically accurate. That's it.
1: As if we haven't already all along. But anyway, so then he back into the airplanes and of course the, the the group has been scattered, losing Forts Oaks. De sticking with us. Holland back is abandoning ship. Oh, then there they say five hours over the Italian Alps, five hours to Africa, over the Med, two hours to Algeria. Six hundred gallons left. They dump everything that's not bolted down into the Med, including the northern bomb site. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Again, um, planes coming apart. And again, this is continuous tension here. It doesn't let up because, you know, one fort lands, Van, no- Van Noy's fort ditches, 350 miles to land in the Med. I mean, those guys are goners, right? Uh, so this is, you know, pretty, pretty brutal, even after they lose the fighters.
0: Yeah, it it, it doesn't it doesn't let up at all. It, it doesn't let up at all, the entire episode. And Van Noy, regarding Van Noy, that, that is accurate. You know, he was... Uh, they did put it down and they were captured by the Germans. He spent the war as a prisoner, him and his whole crew spent the war as a prisoner of war after this Regensburg raid. So, But um, mm. the one thing I wanted to mention, because uh, we, we kind of shot it up last week, no pun intended, was was Harry Crosby. And Tommy, you touched on it very briefly when we first started this, is that uh, by now this is his fifth or sixth, um, sixth, this is his sixth mission. Um, the change that you see in the character, the way you see Harry Crosby in this episode is how Harry Crosby was very professional, highly intelligent. I mean, like I said last week bordering on genius, if not there, um, highly intelligent, highly professional to the T, to the letter. Uh, there's a scene where he tries, um, And again, whether this conversation happened or not, I frankly, I don't know. But he has a conversation with the bombardier Douglas and he's like you know i i need to write down when bit went down and and he's like nobody you know who the hells paying attention to that we were you know in the middle of something here and he's if like he i got to write it down yeah he's like i got to write yeah. it down and you know i think that i think that was very well portrayed not just because crosby is and was a professional but he he had his job to do he wanted to do his job and i think that was kind of one way he might have been trying to deal with the loss I got to, maybe if I mark it down, maybe it'll help, you know, whatever. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into something that, that ain't there, but,
2: um, and For the I log like sake little... and the the record sake of knowing where they went down so that we could later, maybe with Intel, find out if someone lived or, or that kind of thing is, you know, and clearly he becomes a historian later, uh, yeah. as well. So it maybe has some roots in some of his duties there with, with capturing that information. But I think you're right. I think it's kind of a double, uh, a twofold, Reason for doing it, like you just said, you know, one for processing, coping, making note of it. Uh, but I think it's also helpful for for intel to try to find out who who lived, you know, because you hear uh, later as the guys get to the ground, they're asking how many shoots did you see from this aircraft or that aircraft? Nah, I didn't really see any, you know. So there's a lot of questions still of who's still out there, who who floated and made it, and who didn't.
0: And that kind of thing goes into uh, what what are called MACRs, missing aircraft uh, reports, which are available online, by the way. Fold three, if anybody wants to look them up, they're there. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that was put into there. So you could back home at Thorpe Abbott, you could figure out, okay, maybe Van Noy did make it out because we saw the airplane go down, we saw guys getting a life wrap. Eh, eh, who knows? You know, you never know. Or this airplane's got 10 people in it and we only saw seven shoots and then the thing blew up. So we know three guys died. Who were those three? We don't know. We'll find out that, you know, in the POW camp kind of thing, but, but yeah, so all that, I mean, I agree hundred percent is what I'm trying to say, Tommy, is that all that is important, but I just like that, that exchange that they showed in the, in the
2: nose of the plane. I thought that was pretty cool. That was a good scene. I I wasn't expecting that. And I felt like that was a good soft touch uh, and a way to kind of also address what the heck just happened to us, you know, and how, mm-hmm. how to kind of wrap up that very difficult uh, and gripping battle sequence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and throughout this episode, you, and Bucky's crew, I think it was Bucky's crew is trying, is teasing each other with a riddle. And I never figured out the riddle. I don't know if anybody in the audience has figured uh, that, it out. And,
0: that was, that was Crosby's, uh, that was a crew Crosby's Crosby was crew on. And, yeah. Um, and the lead pilot for this particular mission, uh, in which, and he flew with them for, for, The majority of the war was a guy named Everett Blakely, Ev Blakely, they called him, or Blake. Um, That's the pilot of the airplane. Uh, The command pilot rode with that particular airplane. This time it was Colonel, or later Colonel, uh, Jack Kidd. Uh, He was the overall CO for the 100th in the air for the Regensburg raid. They flew in a B-17 called Just a Snappin' uh, for this particular raid that you're going to see again, you know, as, as the missions progress. So... So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I thought that was very Good. well done. Great detail. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Of course,
1: Krause pulls out his snow globe after he realizes yeah. he's going to live. And then when they do finally make it to Algerian land, he kisses the ground. I know that that's accurate as well.
0: Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. while we're talking about lane names, we mentioned Piccadilly Lily before. And, of course, again, 12 o'clock high, you're going to see Piccadilly Lily. That was, you know, he got Bernie Lay got that name from the 100th and the Regensburg read. Gail Clevin's plane that he flew in this for this mission. Probably the best nose art name of the 100th at this time. Uh, spelled P-H-A-R-T-Z-A-C. Fart sack. Great name. <laughs> Great name for a B-17. Fart sack. Love it. Absolutely
1: love it. But... Uh, well, he's, you know, and he's landing. He's coming in land and, and he loses his last engine as he's on short final. And so he's got all his and all his props feathered, and somebody—I guess it was the co-pilot—says, "Well, we're, we're a glider now, and he And they're waiting, and, and you know, Buck is saying, "You know, the co-pilot wants to lower the gear." Buck's saying, "No, stop! Don't do it yet." He's right; the gear creates drag, mm-hmm. which is going to cause you to land even shorter. So he he drops those gear at the last possible moment, and they still land short of the runway.
0: Yeah. I, they still land, <laughs> but they get home. Yeah. And, 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 and again, I don't know how up. accurate that was, but it was it was good. It was good TV, if nothing yeah. else. So, you know,
1: the shiny side up, 30 side down. I've heard various modifications.
0: Any landing you can walk away
1: from is a good landing. So, this That's was it. a good landing.
0: Indeed. Indeed. And what they did show with the in Clevin's airplane, specifically the radio operator Gunner, uh, like you, I forget if it was either you, Bill, or Tommy mentioned earlier. Uh, having his legs taken off uh, that, that is, mm-hmm. that is accurate. That is hundred percent accurate. Um, the way that gentleman was killed in action is how it was portrayed in the show. Uh, mm-hmm. and very well done. Mm-hmm. So the final tally here, Seth, is that Buck lost four
1: forts and 11 of the 21 was it, I guess that's 11 of the 21 in the group made it to Africa. Does that sound right? That that's a
0: hundred percent accurate. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Buck and Bucky were talking about um, Bidek and saying, ah, knowing Kurt, he's probably sitting around with a
0: bottle of schnapps
1: right about now. And of course they don't know that he has been killed.
0: Right. Right. And, and you know, the, the the heartbreaking aspect to this, um, the whole air war is that unless you saw an airplane explode, kaboom in front of your face, which happened uh, obviously often or, if you happen to be in a prisoner of war camp with that guy, like Tommy was saying earlier, mm. you didn't know if they survived mm. if or or not. You know, if you were lucky enough to make it all the way through your tour, more often than not, you would not know what happened to Curtis Bidick until after the war. Mm. Yeah. And that's that that great unknown that just kind of floats around with these guys for mm. you know, a long time. Mm. Yeah, long time. Right. So well.
1: Any I, anything I was going to talk about some of the comments that we got from viewers, Seth. But is there anything else you want to say about the episode before we close it out?
0: I just want to say that you know, like, like do like we did last time before we before we get to the comments is you know, um, give our assessment of the episode now and because sure. I I'll, I'll go ahead and start because because you asked me. So uh, I I think it was sure. outstanding. I, I I really do. I mean, with the exception of the. The story about Biddick's Copilot that that you know didn't happen the way they showed it. Aside from that, I thought it was absolutely by far this is the best episode so far. I, th- I thought it was great. I really did. I thought it was
2: fantastic. But you, Tommy, yeah, I agree. Yeah, oh, good, yeah. Tommy. Yeah, I'll agree. It it was quite possibly my favorite episode so far. It was probably one of the hardest episodes to watch. Uh, one of the more not just for the intensity, but I mean, just even even if you. I have to imagine, even if you're watching this, most of us obviously know this history, familiar with this history, but even those who maybe are watching this for the first time but never even heard of the Eighth Air Force, I've got to think this is still going to be an impactful episode for them within the whole series. Um, you know, even from just a, a patriotism standpoint, everything else, I just felt like that entire episode was just one big, emotionally moving and powerful uh, creation on the screen. So kudos to... to. uh the folks who put that episode together.
1: Yeah, yep. I agree that it was the best so far. My only worry, I guess a good worry to have, is it was so good. I don't know how they keep up with it. I don't know how they keep this level of intensity going. Is this going to be the pinnacle and it's going to decline from here? are they going to, are they going to have to add other dramatic aspects like romance and all you know, are they going to have to Hollywood it up? in future episodes to keep the attention that's how good this one was yeah. i hope they do i without hollywoodizing it
0: but but that's that's a good problem to have i guess well spoiler alert yes <laughs> the drama does continue <laughs> to mount as the war goes on this is by far mm-hmm. the hardest raid that these guys have flown yet but this ain't the hardest that they're gonna fly for the war i Lord guarantee to come more mm-hmm. to come for sure
1: I want to come. All right. All right, Hi, Bill. Hey, so I, I got some, some uh, comments that I th- absolutely agree with some viewer comments, and then we can tackle a couple that were just plain old ridiculous, but, but I thought we'd go around. And the first one I wanted to say that I absolutely agree with was somebody mentioned that the RAF guys that we talked about in the last episode, episode uh, part two, not episode two, there, there were stereotypical RAF guys, uh, sneering and, and, and I thought, you know what, it, it, the irony here is that it's made in England <laughs> and nearly all of the actors are English, but I thought the comment was fair, that perhaps they did stereotype the
0: RAF guys a little bit too much. What do you guys think? I, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, were there guys like that? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt. But I would say, again, from everything I was told by guys who did this thing in real life, that when it came to interactions with the RAF, be they bomber pilots, fighter pilots, whatever, it was that um, mutual respect. You know, like you're doing this and we're doing the same thing, albeit at different times of the day. Um there was that mutual respect pretty much all the way around because each group knew what the other group was facing and they were facing Mm -hmm. death every single day. So there was that, that camaraderie there. Was there a rivalry? Of course. Yeah. I mean, hell, there's a rival Mm -hmm. between the Marine Corps and the army, you know, everybody knows that, but, 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 but was it a friendly rivalry more so than a physical rivalry? I would say, yeah. Were there fights? Yeah, sure. But, but I mean, by and large, from everything I was told, it was a, uh, brothers in arms kind of thing. Yeah. Good.
2: yeah, I think so. Oh, I think that- that's true, too, because it's, uh, you know, you put a bunch of young or even not so young uh, airmen and pilots and other stuff, give them a few drinks. Everybody gets a little cocky. And oh, I wow. think it also may have been sort of a hat tip to this is probably too early in the timeline, but later on the. Uh, the adage, like you know, was it overpaid, oversexed, and over here, and some of the frustration. <laughs> where after a little while, uh, I think the Brits probably mm. get a little tired of us being everywhere that they, you know, go. Especially if they're trying to pick up a date or something. But um, you know, I thought it was, I thought it was okay. Yeah, great. Uh, the next comment
1: I wanted to bra- raise, Seth, was uh, I love this one. Comment was written by an actual B seventeen pilot who flies, who has hundreds of hours flying B-17s. And so he was agreeing with our analysis that most of the CGI of the B-17 control surfaces and all that was, was accurate. He's saying he did a great job. In fact, this pilot has actually flown into that very field in Greenland. And he says, it looks exactly like that. So we got, you know, kind of reinforcement from a real B-17 pilot that, that our, our, Amateur observations of the way the B 17 was see, was rendered in the computer generated imagery
0: was accurate. That was cool. Yeah, that's always nice to get affirmations from guys who know what the hell they're doing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the next comment was about the Norden bomb site and our point about the fact that we could do this daylight precision bombing but with the Brits couldn't and and somebody gave me a history lesson on that bomb site I I knew I told you I knew where it was designed and built in the United States in a little in factory not so little big factory outside of Indianapolis and he said yeah but it was invented by a Swedish guy who tried to sell it to the Brits and the Germans before he tried to before he actually sold it to us and that it wasn't that precise because it had some windage error." And it was kind of daylight precision bombing
0: was a fiction. What do you guys think about that? I, again, I agree with that 100%. I, I thought we were kind of clear on our comments regarding the Norden that, mm. you know, it was a top secret thing within the United States Army Air Forces and that, but it really wasn't all that effective. I thought we kind of made that point. But to hit that home again, um, no, he's 100% right. The, the Norden bomb site was supposed to be the secret weapon. Uh, for the 8th Air Force, well, not just the 8th Air Force, but I mean, any bomber that put it in the nose. And uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't. I mean, again, as I said, you know, if you look at the archival footage in these bombing raids, they're killing a lot of deer a lot of times, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're 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 making new holes in the landscape as opposed to where they need to be. Do they hit the target? Yeah, of course. But there's a lot of times where they... I mean, they couldn't be farther off target if they tried, and that was mm. utilizing the Norton. So, I mean, it wasn't – there was no precision bombing in World War II. There wasn't. The most precision instrument you could use to hit a target with a bomb in World War II was called the Dauntless Bomber. And even then, yep. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't very accurate. So,
1: Good. Um, I was also heartened to see that the writer we, – we caught the attention of the writer mm-hmm. of – Um, masters of the air and that was very heartwarming and reassuring that we got some pretty big uh, high powered dudes watching our little review of this uh, major release Um, and and uh, yeah so
0: what did you think about that i mean i Tommy, I mean, I, I think it's awesome. You know, I'm. I'm. Yeah. It's always. It's always nice to know that that people appreciate. I mean, and you know, our, our regular show gets a lot of views and a lot of hits. And I love mm-hmm. you guys. Thank you all very much. But this is a, you know, a new venture for us, and not completely foreign, but it's a new venture for us. And and the fact that uh, the writer for the show watched both episodes and I'm assuming this one too. I don't know who knows. Uh, Mm. Thank you. And um, appreciate it. You know, I mean, that's cool to know that the the guy who wrote the show is looking at the stuff that we do and for the most part, agree with what we said. So, Hey, we ain't wrong.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. And my last uh, comment that I, where I'm kind of agreeing with it is I was, I was pretty hard on the music in, in our last review where I said it didn't, it doesn't grip me and hold me the way, the music from Band of Brothers still does today. So somebody encouraged me to go back and listen to the theme song a few more times. And okay, it's growing on me, but it didn't change my
2: opinion. I I said the same thing to my wife, who uh, started watching the first episode the other day uh, with me. And I said, you know, as much as I love that music, I don't remember loving the Band of Brothers theme the first two or three episodes. I think it wasn't until the entire—and same is true for the Pacific—until the entire series had gone through, until you've been emotionally invested in the storyline and the characters and the drama, um, that it really— I don't think it really, you know, hit home or uh, or, or created a, a place here for me to remember it and ha- and have an impact. Not just about that series, but to be able to relate it to World War II in general, or to the specific, you know, role of an infantryman or or, or a marine, if you will, in in the Pacific. And in this case, it'll be you know an airman. I'm curious to see how we feel about the music, uh, you know, eight nine episodes later uh, or into the series. If we if we feel more impacted toward the end of the series than we do now.
1: Yeah, you're saying is after it has evoked a bunch of emotion from us, maybe the music will anchor all of those feelings. And when you hear the music, those feelings will come back. That's a fair point. Uh, I'm waiting to see if that happens, Tommy. We'll see what happens. Yeah, good. Hey, you guys have any other positive or or agreeing comments before we turn the tables here and talk about some comments that I want (laughs) to...
0: I, I think I think um, you know. Just commenting on the show as a whole, I think it's been outstanding. You know, I see a lot yeah. of negative comments in the ether that say, "Oh, the shows it sucks," and I'm like, "Why? How? How how does it suck? You know how how is it inaccurate?" We've pin we've pinpointed some of those inaccuracies. To be fair, mm. but I mean, again, you know, I've heard people complain that the CGI is bad. How? Why? Do tell. Compared to what? Yeah, yeah exactly. do tell. I mean, give me a break. You know, again, mm-hmm. unless you got a DeLorean and a flux capacitor, brother, you ain't gonna see this kind of thing in real life. So, I think it's awesome. I think it's outstanding. Yeah. I really
1: do. Agree. All right. Well, the the comment of the week, I think Seth was this guy that that basically said he loves our regular podcast, <laughs> but absolutely hate hates hates our review of master of the air and then he went off into 20,000 reasons why he hates our review of master of the air saying it's not a documentary it's entertainment and and he just excoriates us and then at the end of the review he says even though I don't have apple tv and I haven't seen the show. <laughs> what kind of, what kind of idiot would write
0: something like that? <laughs> Somebody who wants to start something is all it is. Yeah. And uh, somebody has got nothing else better to do. My, my thing with that is, you know, uh, one of the things that that particular individual criticized was the fact that we were criticizing the portrayal of Curtis Bittick. And I'm not going to get on my soapbox anymore, but I'm going to say this. If you are going to portray a real human being, specifically one who is killed in action, you need to do it correctly. My job, your job, Tommy, your job as a historian, is to tell history in a fair and accurate manner. That's what our career and our profession is all about. It's our job to point out things that are inaccurate and incorrect. And as you've said, Bill, people today, unfortunately, get about 90 to 95% of their historical knowledge on movies and TV. And therefore, if they're seeing something that is inaccurate historically, and they take it to be truth, then That's what they're going to accept. And therefore, the historical narrative, if actual events are therefore changed and they're not accurate. And our job as historians is to say. It looks good, but that's not how it happened. And here's why. And if we don't do that, we're not doing our job. So if you don't like that and if that bends your sense of reality. Find something else to look at, brother, because that's what we're going to do every time, because that's our job. Our job is to educate and tell people what really happened. And I'm not I'm not taking a dump on the show, as I said multiple times. I think it's great, but if you you know, our job is to point out what's right and what's wrong. So if you don't like it, a perfect, yeah, a perfect example of that
1: Seth is the this historical falsehood that's you know still hanging in the narrative that Yamamoto was a reluctant warrior. This you uh, from created out of whole cloth from Torah, Torah, Torah. I fear we have awakened a sleeping giant. People think he really said that. He, yeah was he, did he spend time in the United States yeah did he kind of like the United States yeah but he was fully on board with the attack on Pearl Harbor and never said any such thing and so that but but you you talk to people they think that actually happened right that Japan was reluctantly and particularly Yamamoto specifically reluctantly entered the war it's nonsense
2: yeah it's, so, it's yeah we've got it you, you got professors teaching that in colleges you know it's it's uh yeah. we're kind of uh disappointing that that is can you, much like and we may get comments about this and i'm sorry if i uh, upset some people but to my knowledge they don't exactly study uh dick winters and you know the whole attack on the artillery at break manor at west point i don't think that was something that's you know every year taught to everybody i've ever known to go to west point they didn't learn about it till they saw band of brothers and maybe they talk about it because they've seen the series but there's that mentioning I think in one of the episodes that that was still a tactic or or whatever again, some of this stuff that ends up in shows ends up becoming true history, but yeah but but again, you know, I think to take it in another direction, I'm glad to see what they're doing with this series. I'm glad to see that it's opening up conversations. It's hilarious to me. There's people who are bagging on it that then, like you say, admit they don't even have Apple TV and haven't watched it or they're disagreeing <laughs> with stuff we've said and they haven't even watched it. But, uh, mm. you know, I, I do like that it's at least evoking conversations. And I have no yes. doubt there will be more people finally taking a look at a whole other aspect of the war that hasn't been covered in popular history in quite some time other than the 1990s Memphis Bell film. But um No, I mean, you know, it's okay for entertainment, and most of the ladies I've ever known like it because Harry Connick Jr.'s in it, but, but uh, you know, it's—to me, I'm looking forward to people taking more of an interest in this history, or, you know, I've already run into and met folks that are like, hey, I didn't even realize I had a family member who fought in the 8th Air Force and was shot down, you know, or or something to that effect, and so— that I'm looking forward to. I know there's going to be some tropes and some other things that continue, but, but, it's, uh, you know, it's part of Hollywood, you know, it's oh, part yeah. of filming. But, you know? but overall, I mean, I feel like they're, they are doing their best to do a, uh, an accurate, accurate portrayal and, and they're doing a, a huge, huge service and a huge, uh, benefit to history and to the, to the men who flew in these missions.
0: I couldn't I agree, agree and, couldn't agree more. Yeah.
1: And I don't want to say, you know, viewers, listeners don't leave comments. If you
0: disagree with us, hundred percent, we want to hear from you. However, don't be an idiot. And, and, and to, to echo what Bill said, we, we, we do love to hear from you. And just because we give our opinions doesn't have, you don't have to agree with it. I don't care. I mean, if you got something to say, say it, but be respectful. Mm -hmm. Don't be a jackass. Uh, Number one, number two, um, if we state something as fact, not that we're 100% right all the time, because we're not, we're human beings, all of us. Uh, there's only, you know, whatever. We're, we're, we're all humans. We all make mistakes. Sometimes I forget things. Sometimes I misspeak. Even though I'm looking at the right thing in my notes, I'll say the wrong thing because it's just that's just the way my brain works. <laughs> if we say it to be fact, more often than not, it's because it is fact. It, it is accurate. So, you know, I mean, you can challenge it and I bring it on. But, uh, you know, just be respectful. Be cool. I've had people call me out and I've looked back and go, damn, yeah, they're right. hundred percent. And if yeah. I see that, I'll acknowledge that every time. Every he, will.
2: time. I'll, he will. I'll vouch for that. He'll do it. You know me long enough. I have. I have. You're, <laughs> anyway. you're good about that. I do want to ask you all really quickly, too. Did you watch the promo for next week? And what are you looking forward to?
0: I did not. So I I, I, 100 um, percent I, I, honestly, honesty. Um, I watched the episode last night, as I said, with a raging raging sinus headache and yeah. when it was done i was emotionally and mentally spent i was like i am done i shut the tv off i made my notes and i went to bed yeah. so so
2: no i haven't i will i'll look at it later
0: yeah i saw but, it at uh, the end
2: of the episode and, and i mean i know yeah. what happens it, it, it's it's yeah. a bremen
0: raid on october 8th 1943 which is the beginning of what's called black week uh, if anybody and 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 before we before we sign off i want to pile on to what you said tommy just a couple minutes ago about um historical accuracy you can see my dog in the background back hey, there. um but uh and in, so far as what you what you digest you the general public digest on television be it masters of the air the pacific band of brothers flags of our fathers sands of iwo jima battleground whatever they call this show um pick up a book man pick up a book and do your own research and do your own reading because don't take everything that you hear on <laughs> internet to be fact because not all of it is um but but to your point, Tommy, I hope this does encourage, and it will, I've already seen it, encourage more research, not just family research, but like, you know, reading research, just interest in in, in the Eighth Air Force or the Army Air Forces in Europe, World War II. Um, you know, there's some friggin' amazing stories out there all over the Eighth and Ninth Air Force and the RAF that are flying, you know, in a Nazi-occupied Europe. Do your research, man, do some reading. You will not be uh, disappointed at all, by what you read, I assure you. But and that um, uh, warning
1: is is appropriate, Seth, because this week, in a regular episode, we are releasing unauthorized looks at Pacific War books. Indeed. And so, as someone who still reads hundreds of pages a week, I, uh, man, I love reading. And so, yeah, this is going to be one of these things that we encourage you to do the
0: same. Or you don't have to do as much as I do, but... Um, <laughs> You know, it, it would actually be two. You know, we said that this would be nine episodes and, and I know we're running long. And we got to cut it out. But but we said that this little mini series would be nine episodes. I'm, I'm going to make the suggestion that we make it 10, because at the end, I think we need to give a, a roundabout of what, you know, not just what we think of the series, but, you know, an actual history and in, in, in terms of books. You know, there's some good ones that we can give a list of that are well, not in this room, but because um, I'm at home, but in my office, right down the hall from you, Tommy. That I and I know you got some too, and I know you probably got some too, Bill. That we could recommend people that you know, hey, look, read these kind of thing, um, or look at these, whatever you want to do. And uh, that'd probably be a good idea too. So maybe we'll do ten. How about that? Kind of make it happen. nice. Sounds good. Yeah,
2: evening. book in the uh, book in the whole series there. Kind of summarize and rewrap everything we've seen once it's all complete. Indeed, sounds Indeed. good. All right, guys.
0: Anything else? I think I'm good. That's it. All right. Cool. Well, with that, we want to thank you very much for tuning in, listening and or watching the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. Please give us a rating and review wherever you receive your podcast. Uh, We do appreciate it. Please click that like and subscribe button on YouTube. We do appreciate that as well you want to see the video version of this, duh. If you're not already looking at it, look at it on YouTube. You know where to find it. If you have a question or comment, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, my name is Seth and I want to thank you very much for listening and or watching. Tommy, my brother, thank you for being here. Happy birthday. Yesterday was your birthday, by the way. Again, <laughs> I've told you about 25 you. times, but I'm going to continue to do so. Thank you much.
1: Bill, bring us home. And I'm Bill Toady. See you again next week.